Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. Uh, If you have a Bible with me, I'd ask you to join me in, uh, let's start in Acts, actually. I've got a different one I'll start with on the screen in a minute, but I'll ask you to turn to Acts here in a minute. We're talking about the resurrection tonight at the core of Christianity is Christ. And when we talk about Christianity, there are sometimes things that are said against Christianity that are absolutely not true. For example, a lot of times we'll tell you that Christians just choose to believe on no evidence. Or that Christians choose to believe, even worse, in spite of the evidence. But I'm here tonight to tell you that we are a follower of the risen Lord Jesus of Nazareth because of the evidence, as well as because of His drawing on our hearts and and dwelling of the Holy Spirit. But when you go to Scripture, you can find that Christ is that core of Christianity. I want to start in 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. Because when we think about what Christ did for us, the Bible says that God made Him who knew no sin, sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. I am not sure, you could ask your pastor later, and I might be wrong, I'm not sure there's a verse in the Bible with more doctrine packed into it than this one right here. Think about all that this tells us. God made Him who knew no sin, we're talking about Jesus tonight, He made Him sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. If you're in the room tonight and you're a Christian, you're a follower of God, how have you realized you are more than forgiven? You are more than no longer guilty. You are, in fact, uh, uh, heir to the righteousness of Christ on your account by God's grace through it on the cross. That's amazing, right? This is the center of Christianity. It goes back to Christ. Yes, we've talked about the existence of God. We've talked about the reliability of our scriptures in the previous two sessions. But as we turn now to the subject of Jesus and the resurrection, I want to, if you're in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, Acts 17, 31, look at this incredible passage. The Bible says, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. And he guesses on who that man who's ordained by God is? He's talking about his son, born of a virgin, Jesus Christ. By that man, God will judge all, but Jesus Christ, the judge of all at the end of this age. By that man shall he, which he hath ordained, look at this, whereby he hath given assurance unto all men. Oh, I got to see this. Do you realize that according to Scripture, there's a God who created and controls and is in charge of everything? Sin is like a cancer. Sin is a rebellion. Sin is, is terrible and awful and is rebellion against God. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's, it's not functioning like God created it to function because of our free will when we choose to sin. 
And God has chosen to redeem, to offer us through the cross a path of redemption. God has said that this is the way of salvation. And do you realize at the end of this age, there's a judgment? There's a judgment for you and I, for uh, rewards, for our service. There's a judgment to those that are not saved, that will lead to an eternity without Christ. And the Bible says God has told us about this judgment, but verse number 31 says, He hath given assurance unto all men, look at how it ends, in that He hath raised Him from the dead. Do you realize according to what Paul says here, according rather to what Luke says in this passage, uh, as Paul taught, that God has given us assurance, God has given, in fact, all men assurance that what these things are are true through the man, Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead. There's one more verse I'd like to ask you to go to in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. Because 1 Corinthians 15 is the chapter in the Bible entirely dedicated to the resurrection. I'd love if I had time to just exegetically work through it tonight because he begins by talking about the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. He defines the gospels, the death, burial, and the resurrection. Talks about Peter and talks about James, his half-brother, and 500 brethren at one time who saw the risen Lord. He then in the middle of this chapter goes through and talks about what does it look like for you and I? Do you realize the resurrection of Christ is important for you and I because we have a resurrection that will come as well, but right here in the middle of 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, in verse number 17, the Apostle Paul says, if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Contrary to what those that object to Christianity may claim, that we believe what we believe without evidence, the Bible, in fact, gives very clear criteria for determining the truthfulness of the gospel message. The gospel message is rooted in actual historical events that had to have happened in order for our faith to be valid. If the claims, the testable claims of the New Testament are in fact not true, Paul says our faith is in vain. In fact, there is a way to falsify Christianity, and it would be to prove that some things that Scripture affirms to have happened indeed did not happen. If you were to ask a Christian today, could I, is there anything that would convince you to not be a Christian? I don't know how you would answer that, but I know how the Apostle Paul would answer that, because he answered it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit right here in the verse that we just read. He says, if nobody rises from the dead, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, your faith is in vain. You're yet in your sins, and we are of all men most miserable. See, he's not saying if Christianity resonates with you, if it's a part of your culture, if it gives you a feeling of significance, if it gives you a sense of purpose, if it, if it helps you have a better home, then go with it. Just go with it. You, you do you. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying Christianity is objectively true. Whether you believe it or don't believe it, it's still true. It's rooted in historical events where God interacted with our world, where God literally entered our world as the incarnate virgin-born Jesus of Nazareth. Now that 
ladies and gentlemen, gives us a foundation to go into a culture that is skeptical, in fact, even hostile toward our belief. That look at Christianity sometimes as something that people choose to believe for no good reason, when in fact, what we believe is rooted in actual historical events. Now I'm going to jump, I'm going to skip a lot of the arguments that we could give. Last week, we talked about the reliability of the New Testament text, and that's a part of this. But there's four distinct arguments I want to stack tonight, and we'll go through these somewhat quickly, that will help you and help me and hopefully help our witness as people who are standing for the truth. Tonight, we're going to look at the, the, what I call the hostile witnesses, the uniquenesses of Christ's claim. We'll touch briefly on prophecies and then end with an empty tomb. Now, why do we need to begin with hostile witnesses? What we're talking about here is the fact that Jesus existed. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible that the most famous person in human history actually didn't exist? While you may run into someone who professes to believe that Jesus wasn't real or that Jesus didn't exist, I have news for you tonight. That person who denies the existence of Jesus is not revealing a lack of faith. They are revealing a lack of education. Without being unkind, a person who denies that Christ existed, that Jesus was actually a historical person, is simply not well read on the subject. In fact, we have as much evidence that Jesus existed as we do for any person in the ancient world. In fact, for most people that we believe in and know about, much more. But while I could talk about the early Christian writings, while certainly we could talk about the New Testament, while we could talk about the Antinician church fathers and all of these different sources of literature that validate that there really was a person named Jesus... I want to take just a few examples tonight of people who were not Christian, who were not favorable toward Christianity, but were contemporary in the first century or second century, but still affirmed what we have written for us here in Scripture. The first one is Thales, someone that we, are, we actually no longer have the record of. We talked last week about the thousands of manuscripts that we have for the Bible. We don't have these of Thales, but he was quoted by Africanus, and he's quoted as referring back to the crucifixion. Now, this person, you'll notice, is born in about AD 5 and died about 60. Jesus was born somewhere around there. He wasn't born in year zero. There wasn't one. He might have been born actually in year two or three AD. We're not sure exactly. Maybe year one. But if these two people went to the same the same grade school, they would have been in grade school together, right? They're almost exactly the same age. They would have been teenagers at the same time. They were practically the same age. He lived a lot longer than Jesus. Jesus was crucified as a young man, right? But this is a person that is what we would call contemporary. By contemporary, we don't mean they've got a certain kind of look or style or sound of music. We're talking about they were at the same time. So Thales is a writer at the same time of Jesus, and he says this as quoted by Africanus. On the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, Thales, in the third book of his history, calls, as appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. (laughs) Here is someone who is alive at the time of Jesus, who is recording for us the events that Scripture records, 
at the moment that Christ is crucified. We read about this account in the Gospels. Now we have a secular outside account that tells us the same thing happened. Josephus is another name that you're likely familiar with. Josephus is famous for writing the Antiquities. He's a Jewish historian, a Jewish man himself, who recorded a lot of first century Jewish activities and did so uh, toward the latter end of that era. Josephus is not a Christian. No one believes that he is. No scholar that's read his work. And yet he references in multiple occasions this movement of Christianity and specifically Jesus. Josephus writes about Christ. At this time there was a wise man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good and he was known to be virtuous. Many people from among the Jews and other nations came to be his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion, that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have, have recorded wonders. Josephus is not saying he thinks he's the Messiah, but he's recording what the early Christians believed. Now again, Josephus is a first century witness. There's this idea sometimes that Christianity kind of came into being under Constantine after the Edict of Milan and the Council of Nicaea, and they just kind of put together the New Testament, they kind of stitched together some doctrine, and they, they, they came up 300 years later with this myth that Jesus rose from the dead. Whereas, in fact, the message of the resurrection of Christ goes back to the very first century. And you even see it here for someone who is not a follower of Christ, who is recording that this early group of, of disciples believe Jesus came back from the dead. Now, before I go to the next slide, let me ask you a question. If I were to give you a name of a Roman emperor, some of them were actually fairly good and some of them were fairly bad. Tell me, for a Christian, how good of an emperor was Nero? Is a good guy or bad guy? Not so much a good guy, right? In fact, you probably know a lot about Nero. Nero wanted to build a new Rome. But there was already an old Rome, so what did he do? He burnt it. He burned it down to the ground so that he could build it back up in what he had pictured. And people didn't like that he burnt Rome, so they were getting agitated. I don't know, maybe they're rioting in the street. So he blamed the Christians for it. You've heard this, right? A lot of you have heard this. He was a horrific persecutor of the Christians in Rome. He did, I won't even describe to you how he killed Christians. It was sadistic. It was awful. This guy was demented. He killed his own mom. If you can imagine how bad of a dude this guy Nero was. Now, all that I just told you about Nero's persecution. <coughs> Does anybody remember where in the New Testament we read about that? And if you can't think of a place, you're in good company because I can't either. Remember last week we talked about the Bible being written by first century witnesses? The fact that Nero's persecution, which happened in 65 AD, is not recorded even in the book of Romans, which is written to that church in that city, proves how early the Bible was written and the eyewitnesses were still around. So while all of that we kind of know, but it's not in the New Testament, how do we come to that? Well, Tacitus is the answer. He is a Roman court chronicler who lived in the first century and referenced the persecution of Christians. He wrote as follows. 
Nero fabricated scapegoats and punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians, as they were popularly called. Their originator, Christ, had been executed in Tiberius' reign by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. But in spite of this temporary setback, the deadly superstition had broken out afresh, not only in Judea, where the mischief had started, but even in Rome. Okay, I started this section by saying the witnesses we're about to hear from are hostile. This is a good place to stop and ask, am I justified in calling this guy a hostile witness? Do you see the language that he uses that reveals his disdain toward Christians? He uses words like mischief, deadly superstition. This is not a friendly person as he writes about Christianity. He thinks of it as a threat, as a nuisance, as something that is to be despised. And yet look at what he records. The historical existence of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus by Rome, and the early account of the believers that he didn't stay dead. Two more hostile witnesses, Mara Bar Serapion, who was a Syrian, who was not a, a Christian, nor even really a Jew, wrote the following, What advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? It was just after that that their kingdom was abolished. Now, if you were here last week, some of you weren't, but if you were here last week and you look at when he was born, you know that's a significant date. Because in Jerusalem, that year, Titus marched in and completely destroyed the temple. Do you remember that? Completely toted out the furniture, left it in ruins, a heap of rubble as it is to this day. And he's giving a lesson to the people that he's writing to. And here's basically his lesson. Hey, listen to the people in charge. Right? In his society, it'd be different than in the Jewish society, but the message is the same. Listen to the people in charge. Don't get out of line. Don't do what you're not supposed to do. Listen to the, the people with the, with the authority. Because guess what? The Jews didn't. They executed the guy that said he was their king, and their whole kingdom was destroyed. The final thing I want to show you is from the Jewish writing of the Talmud. Now, this is the only one I'll take time to mention that's not within the first century. All of those that we've already looked at are hostile witnesses. We're ignoring all of uh, Irenaeus and Polycarp and Clement of Rome and Clement of Alexandria and Justin Martyr and all of these other writings. We're just talking about hostile witnesses tonight. And they were all in the first century. This one's a few hundred years later, but it's a Jewish writing of the Talmud. The Talmud records the death of Christ as well. And we can keep a little bit ahead of me on these slides here. I've got some of them on build. And here it's describing the reason why they felt they had to uh, kill Christ. You'll notice some differences. The day before Passover, they hanged Jesus. A herald went out 40 days proclaiming he'll be stoned because he practiced magic and enticed Israel to go astray. Help me with a better word instead of magic. What did Jesus do? Miracles. I like that better. He performed miracles. They called it magic. It wasn't a magic trick from Las Vegas, right? He was doing miracles like healing people and bringing them back from the dead. But... They didn't like that he was doing magic. That he was leading people astray, so they had to kill him. They said they sent out a, a herald, gave him 40 days. No one would stand in his defense. There's a lot of things about this that aren't true. But you know what? They're not denying that Jesus was a real person who was killed in collaboration between the Jewish leaders and the Roman government in the first century. So what I want to establish first is that Jesus genuinely existed. And it is a fact tonight 
that you don't have to be a conservative Christian, you don't have to be a Christian of any stripe, you don't have to be uh, a believer in God to affirm this. Scholars across the board agree that Jesus existed. So Jesus historically is an absolute fact. Here's the question. If Jesus really existed, who is he? Let's look at the uniquenesses of his claim. In fact, most people, when you tell them something about Jesus, they'll have good things to say. Have you ever heard anything say, anybody have bad things to say about Jesus? I rarely, if ever, have. The Buddhists have very good things to say about Jesus. The Muslims will say, Jesus, peace be upon him, was one of Allah's prophets. Zoroastrianism, Baha'i, or you go through the different world religions, they're all pretty, pretty high on Jesus. Nobody wants to say bad things. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or you're a Republican, you've got good things to say about Jesus for the most part, right? Everybody's got good things to say about Jesus. But here's where Christians are different. We don't think that Jesus is just a good person with wise teaching or with good principles. We would go far farther than that and say that he was the literal deity, the Son of God in human form who died for our sin. So the fact that Jesus existed is a historical certainty. The meaning of Jesus' existence, for that we have to go to the message of Scripture. In John chapter number 8, you find that Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And they took up stones to stone him. Do you realize Jesus never just presented himself as a prophet? Jesus didn't present himself as just a good moral teacher? Some people want to say Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, guess what? Jesus fed hungry people, but that's not why they killed him. Jesus gave sight to the blind. That's not why they killed him. Jesus preached to the poor. He wasn't crucified for that. Jesus fed the hungry. They didn't nail him to a cross for feeding the hungry. Jesus claimed to be God. That's why he was crucified. Now, while there's a lot of places you can go in Scripture that talk about Jesus being God, I love Acts, uh, uh, I love, uh, Acts 2, but I, I think of John chapter number 1, I think of Revelation, I think of Hebrews 1. There's so many places, I think of Isaiah chapter 9, that show Jesus is God. If you start with Jesus himself claiming to be God, my Bible doesn't have red letters, but if yours does, and you turn to John chapter 8, verse 58, that verse is in red. Because Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews took up stones to stone him. Why? Because he just committed heresy. He had just, he had just blasphemed. He had just claimed to be God. You can't do that in the Jewish culture. Instant death sentence. So Jesus himself claimed to be God, received worship from God, forgave sin as God throughout the New Testament. Jesus is strutting around like he's God, like he commands nature, like he can perform miracles, like he can forgive sins. He makes claims like this, this that the Jews know he's claiming to be God. So here's my question to you. Was that claim true or false? Well, some people say, well, Jesus claimed to be God, but he, he was wrong. He wasn't really God. Well, if Jesus wasn't really God, we still have a problem. Because if Jesus wasn't God, and he knew he wasn't God, but he said he was God anyway, what does that make him? That makes him a liar. If Jesus said he was God, but he wasn't really God, 
And he went around telling people that he was a liar. Guess what? Uh, the, the greatest prophet and moral teacher of human history and someone who based his whole life on a lie, those don't go together, do they? Do you see, the most popular non-Christian idea of Jesus is the least rational. Jesus could not have been a good moral teacher because he claimed to be God. And if he wasn't God, and he knew he wasn't God when he said that, he was a liar. What if he wasn't God, but he thought he was God? Have you ever wondered if you were God? I've got a, a, a pro tip. If you're not sure if you're omniscient, you're not. Okay? That's how that works. But some people say maybe Jesus was, maybe Jesus thought he was God. Maybe he thought he was the creator. He thought he for, could forgive sin. He thought he was eternal. No. If somebody thinks that they're God, they're crazy. They're a lunatic. Right? So Jesus claimed to be God. If he wasn't God, he was either a liar or he was a lunatic. What if that claim to be God is actually true? Well, he's not a liar then, is he? He certainly wasn't a lunatic. He's the Lord of the universe. When you go to Scripture, there's no room given for this idea that he's a good moral teacher. In fact, C.S. Lewis said as much. The idea that Jesus, when Jesus is a man, that falls off the screen. I'm sorry, I didn't have it sized right. A man who said the things that Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil from hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. Hey, we've covered a lot of ground already tonight. We're about halfway there. But what we've seen is that there's no denying that Jesus existed. Even the hostile witness contemporary in the New Testament demonstrate that as a fact. Jesus was a real person. We divide our calendar by his birth. Secondly, we've explored the idea that Jesus is just a good moral teacher. Most people that aren't Christian would, would affirm that Jesus is inspiring in some way, or Jesus is, is a, a helpful teacher. But that's not an option when he claimed to be God. He either is God, or he was a lunatic or a liar. But not only have we seen the historical existence of Christ through hostile witnesses, not only have we seen next the identity of Christ through his unique claims. Number three, I want to just briefly touch on the prophecies of the resurrection. And I promise if you want some of these slides, I'd be happy to give them to you. Uh, I wouldn't try to write these down, but I just want to, I want to touch on prophecies momentarily because we didn't get a chance to the other night talking about Scripture. There are so many prophecies in Scripture that are uh, uh, valid. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump a few slides to the title, Fulfilled Prophecy, number one, about uh, four slides down, if we can do that. Uh, there's a bunch of cool prophecies in the Old Testament we don't have time for. But let me tell you, as you go through the Old Testament, there's a picture of Christ that is formed. Have you ever woken up kind of bleary-eyed, and every time you blinked, it got a little bit more focused? Have you ever had a camera that had one of those actual focuses on it, and it wasn't on automatic, and you had to go like this, and you had to bring it in a little bit more focus? Like those old video cameras. Remember those old video cameras that go out of focus and back into focus, give you a headache trying to watch those homemade videos? 
Well, as you go through the Old Testament, what you see is in the early chapters of the Old Testament, this, this kind of a little bit undefined picture of God in the future sending someone to fix the mess that followed Adam and Eve's rebellion. In every subsequent couple centuries, the picture gets a little bit more defined and a little bit more in focus. Let me give you a couple examples. A thousand years or 1400 years before Christ, Moses prophesied that the Messiah would be born of a woman, male, and descendant of Abraham. Now, this is a remarkable thing. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 18, 16 as well are very important passages for this. Muslims will say, this is talking about Muhammad. It's not talking about Muhammad. Muhammad wasn't a Jew. Muhammad didn't do miracles like Moses did. Christ did all of those things and so much more. So we see in the Old Testament, the first phase of the Old Testament, 1,400 years, by the time of Moses, we know this much about Jesus from the promise of the, uh, the one that would come in Genesis through this period of Moses. By the time of David, there are more things given to us in Scripture. I'd love to take time and look at each of these individually, but we could do that in our personal time. We know that the Messiah would be adored by kings and magi. The Messiah would be quiet before his accusers. The Messiah would be stripped of his clothing, have his hands pierced, and have vinegar given to him to drink. All of that was in the Old Testament a thousand years before Jesus was even born. The prophets continued to clarify this vision even a few, even 700 years before Christ was born. More revelation was given, much of this through Isaiah. We learned that the Messiah would be divine, born of a virgin, scourged for our sin, and conquered death forever. So as you go through the Old Testament, thousands of years or centuries and centuries before Jesus was ever born, we know where he would be born, when he would be born, to whom he would be born, the kind of life he would live, and the kind of death that he would die, and the fact that he would conquer sin forever. What's the chance that Jesus of Nazareth happened to fulfill all of these prophecies? There's no chance at all. So when we look at Scripture, we find that Jesus really existed, that he, he had to have been God or else a lunatic or a liar, that he fulfilled these prophecies throughout the Old Testament, and then we want to end tonight by looking at the fact of the empty tomb. We're not just tonight wondering what we believe, but why we should believe, and I want to talk about the empty tomb as we conclude. I'm still in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 here in front of me. Maybe you are as well. I want to read the first couple of verses. The Bible says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye kept in memory that I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all, that means of foundational importance, of primary concern. This is the foundation of our belief. I, I, I delivered first of all, that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And then He goes through and He lists reasons for belief. He doesn't just tell you you ought to believe it because He tells us, or we ought to believe it because it's recorded somewhere in Scripture, though I find those adequate reasons. 
Paul goes through here and he gives some reasons why we should believe. By the way, how have you realized the disciples needed reasons to believe? Do you remember reading this in the, in the gospel accounts? The disciples were hiding in the upper room for fear of the Jews. They're, they're hiding, right? They're afraid. The women on Sunday morning, they went to the tomb. They saw the angels. They came running up to where the men were, banging on the door. They opened the door. The women came, came in, probably out of breath. They're in the upper room. Have you ever run up steps and then tried to talk? Anybody else? You're like, <gasps> sometimes, sometimes I go up. We've got th- three stories of steps, and that's where, that's where my, my, my boss has an office. Sometimes I'll be asked to step up there, so I'll run up there. Boom, 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 boom. I'll get up to the top. We're ready to have a meeting. <gasps> I'm just trying to catch my breath. Don't you figure the, the, the uh, ladies might have been a little bit windy? by the time they got up there? A little bit excited, maybe all trying to tell the story all at the same time? The tomb is empty. We went there. The angels are there. Jesus is risen. What did the disciples do? They're like, oh yeah, it's Sunday morning. Of course. He said he was going to rise it again. Of course he rose again. Is that what the disciples did? No. The disciples looked at them with disbelief. The women seemed mad to them. They looked at them as if they were crazy. The disciples didn't expect Jesus to rise again. Some of you are thinking, really? Maybe Jesus wasn't clear that he was going to rise again. Oh, he was pretty clear. In fact, that's why they had some guards outside of his tomb. Right? The high priest goes and says, hey, Jesus said he was going to rise again. We've got to keep track of this body. If we lose track of this body, we're never going to get the lid on this this little cult sect thing that's going on, Jesus' followers. We've got to make sure we don't lose this body. He said he was going to rise again. If if we can't produce a body in a couple days from now, we've got to protect this body. Why? Because Jesus said he was going to rise again. The disciples were up there in disbelief. When did the disciples believe? When did the disciples believe that Jesus had risen? When they walked into the tomb, or when they saw the risen Lord. That's what Paul's saying. Paul says, hey, Jesus rose from the dead. Check it out. Look at the reasons he gives. Here in verse number 4 of 1 Corinthians, verse number 5. He was seen of Cephas, this is Peter, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some have fallen asleep. He said, hey, there's so much eyewitness account of this. Guess what? If you were to start a group based on this idea that Jesus rose from the dead, but he didn't actually rise from the dead, the last place you'd expect that to start is Jerusalem. That's where it all went down, right? If there was a body in a tomb, that's where it would have been. But that's the location of the first century church. What can explain that? How do we explain that unless the tomb was empty? Some people try to get around this. They try to give some false theories of the resurrection. Some people say, well, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. He just fainted. This is the swoon theory. Jesus just, Jesus just kind of, he got scourged. He lost all of this uh, blood. He was uh, nailed to a cross. Who knows how hot it was that day? And he just fainted. He was probably dehydrated. He just fainted. They thought he died. He was so weak. They thought he died. They took him down. They wrapped him up. They put him in the tomb. And Jesus He didn't rise from the dead. He just woke up. Well, that doesn't really work, does it? Is that a plausible explanation for what we know? How do you explain that Jesus just woke up? He just swooned when Jesus had a spear rammed through his side and water and blood came out. How do you think that Jesus just 
woke up, what would you then be able to do if you just woke up after being unconscious? Number one, you're all tied up. Remember when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the first thing he said was, loose him. Why? He needed loosed. He was all wound up in swaddling clothes like a mummy, right? He was all tied up. That's how the Jews prepared the body for burial. How, how would you, the, these tombs, they have these huge stones over them. Jesus' tomb wasn't the only one covered by a stone. Every tomb was covered by a stone. You wouldn't want a dog walking down the street with a bone in its mouth and wondering, I wonder if that's grandma's femur. You wouldn't want that, right? There's a sacredness to that. The Jews knew that, so they would cover the entrances to these tombs. They always were, and usually it takes several grown men to get this stone in place from the outside. There's no handles on the inside. There's no, like, like you, you ever been in those minivans, you push the button and the door slides open? Like, there's no button to open the door on the inside of a tomb. How about this? Jesus is on the cross. The centurion comes. He breaks the legs of the malefactors on each side, but not Jesus's. Why? Because he was already dead. This is a guy that came, and he officially certified Christ as dead. He knew something about dead people. It's kind of what he dealt in as a centurion, right? So we know that Jesus died. In fact, C.S. or um, Norman Geisler said, that, we, that there's more evidence that Jesus died than there is that most people in the ancient world ever lived. So the fact that the idea that Jesus died and didn't die isn't a good solution. How about a hallucination theory? Some people say, okay, maybe swoon theory doesn't work. Maybe Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It's just a hallucination of the disciples. They imagined that they saw him. Now, people can have shock, right? It's medically known. People can have a mirage or even a hallucination. That's possible, isn't it? But why is it not possible that a hallucination explains the resurrection? One good reason is, according to Paul here, there were 500 people that saw him at one time. Hey, guess what? There's plenty of people in the room. Guess what? If all, say, if all, all, uh, of us in this room, if we got together on Sunday and we're like, you know what, I had this, I had this hallucination on Independence Day that I went to Liberty Baptist Church and I sat in a pew and I listened to Paul just talk about the resurrection. And like every, all 200 of us remember that? That's not a hallucination, is it? Because this is something like a dream that you experience in your imagination, in your own head, and it's unique to you. You don't have 500 people with simultaneous identical hallucinations. That can't happen. By the way, if they were just hallucinating, there would still be a body in a tomb. Guess who with a lot of power didn't want Christianity to gain a foothold in the first century? Everyone with a lot of power. The entire Jewish hierarchy in Jerusalem, the entire Roman government were in cahoots together to prevent Christianity from getting. You know how easy it would have been to stop Christianity? It would have been incredibly easy. Christianity is a very fragile worldview if you think that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Because when you go through Acts and you read the, the messages, a lot of times in the Bible you read that someone preached, but once in a while you get to read what someone preached. Guess what you'll find in every case? The central point of the apostolic preaching is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And if the resurrection of Jesus Christ had not actually occurred right then in their lifetime, all they would have had to do is say, hey, you guys are crazy. Don't listen to Peter. Don't listen to John. Don't listen to these lunatics. Come on, I'll show you the body. It's still here. He's in the tomb. This is Jesus. We'll come show him to you. Nobody ever did that. Why? Because there was no body in the tomb where they buried Christ. It doesn't work to have a hallucination theory, the impersonation theory that, Jesus, that someone pretended to be like Jesus. This doesn't work. By the way, why would you pretend to be a convicted felon that they just executed? Why? <laughs> to answer that, right? Number two, how? How would you, would you go around with the, would you bore, bore a hole in your hand? Remember when he met Thomas and he said, he said, Thomas, you can put your hand, he actually uses the word balo, which means to throw or to cast. Cast your hand into the hole in my side. Put your fingers in the hole in my hand. Jesus bore the wounds. How about the ascension after he gave the Great Commission? Go ye therefore, preach the gospel to every creature, and he ascends up, then Acts starts with them staring up, and the angels, why stand ye staring up into the heavens? This same Jesus will come again, right? How do, you, how do you impersonate that? This wasn't CGI. They were actually on a mountain watching Jesus and listening to the Great Commission, right? The impersonation theory is completely implausible. The spiritual resurrection theory, that Jesus spiritually rose from the dead, but not physically, I don't even know what that means. Some cults will claim this. But again, there was an empty tomb that has to be explained uh, the next one is actually in the Bible, the theft theory. In fact, this is powerful. No one in the first several hundred years of church history, there's a lot of apologetics going on then. There's a lot of people defending Christianity against attacks. And a lot of people attack Christianity for weird reasons. They called us atheists because we wouldn't worship the pagan temples. Uh, they called us uh, immoral uh, because they didn't understand just a lot of things that were, were, were untrue, and a lot of people attacked Christians. Guess what? No one said against Christians in the first couple hundred years. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. No one said that. No one made that argument. Why would no one make the argument that Christianity isn't true because there still was a body in the tomb? Because there wasn't, Right? Because there wasn't. But think about the theft theory, the idea that the, the disciples stole the body. Number one, they were shepherds or tax collectors or trades uh, fishermen, right? They were tradesmen. They weren't retired SEAL Team 6, right? They were not special forces guys. In fact, they were hiding for fear of the Jews. They're not incredibly brave lot. They're the ones that told us that, by the way. That's the integrity of the New Testament, right? And once in a while, somebody will lie. Uh, I'm a parent. Once in a while, we'll have to deal with honesty issues at home. That's happened before. You know what I've noticed? Every time I've caught someone in a lie, they've always lied to get out of trouble, never lied to get into trouble. I've never been like, hey, kids, come in here. Who broke that lamp? And some kid that's completely innocent say, oh, I did. I broke the lamp and lie about to get in trouble. No, when somebody tells a lie, they're trying to make their life better. It's always wrong, never should do it, usually doesn't work, but that's the idea, right? If I lie, it'll be better for me. What did the disciples get if they lied? 
If they really stole the body and lied about the resurrection, what did they get? They got cut in half by saws. They got burned alive. They got crucified upside down. They got martyred in horrific ways. They were locked into dungeons, lowered down into holes in the ground like Jeremiah in the Old Testament. It was an awful, awful life to be an apostle in the New Testament. And guess what? They all died a martyr's death except for John exiled in Patmos, and none of them denied the message of the gospel. And it wasn't like they all did it all together in one time. As Thomas Aquinas point out, pointed out a millennia ago, they did it in different continents, in different years, some of them all by themselves. And yet they stood by the account of the resurrection. Not only could they not have, it doesn't make sense, and then the unknown tomb theory. The fact that they went and they found, oh man, the tomb is empty, but they went to the wrong tomb. Well, that doesn't make sense either, does it? Because the Jews knew where the tomb was, the Romans knew where the tomb was, and yes, the Christian disciples knew where the tomb was as well. By the way, trick question. I like to give you a, a hint when it's a trick question. When they walked into the tomb, it was completely empty. True or false? It wasn't completely empty. Jesus wasn't there. What was in there? The grave clothes were in there, right? Okay, let's back up one. Do you think they stole the body but left the grave clothes? <laughs> I doubt that, right? How, how about the unknown tomb theory? No, this is absolutely a known tomb. You think the, you think the angel showed up at the wrong tomb too? To talk to the, the, the women in the morning? So when you work your way through these false uh, ideas, what you find is there's no legitimate argument that can be made against the resurrection. In fact, we know of his appearance and the transformation of lives. We know that the tomb was empty based on the denial of the early Christians, the denial of the enemies of the church. We know that the place where this all happened was the epicenter for the New, New Testament church. Gary Habermas is probably the world uh, premier expert on resurrection studies said skeptics must provide more than alternative theories of the resurrection they must provide first century evidence for those theories as well. So you can make up any number of stories ad hoc, but it doesn't explain reality. William Lane Craig said the Jewish authorities did not deny the empty tomb. By the way, that's true in the, in the first century. That's true today as well. If you go there to Jerusalem today, the reality is we don't know where Jesus was buried. I've been to the garden tomb, pictured here. I've been to the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, we don't know for sure which one it is. There's arguments on both sides. But what we do know is that the empty tomb from the first century to today is a defining proof of Christianity in Scripture as well as in our, our argument as well. Jesus himself said in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. I just want to end with a few verses here. I know I'm at time. I still have, I still have 1 Corinthians 5 open, 15 rather. Look at how it ends. The whole chapter's on the resurrection. You guys have studied the Bible enough. You know whenever you see a word therefore, it's important because it connects back to what had previously been said. The Bible goes through all this whole chapter on the resurrection. Look at the very last verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Therefore, this is good. Because of the resurrection, look at what it says. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, 
unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.